for WERU comes from our listeners and from the Maine Community Foundation, working with donors and other partners to improve the quality of life for all Maine people on the web at maincf.org. The time's 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. Coastal Conversations with your host Natalie Springle is up next. Good morning and welcome to Coastal Conversations here on WERU. We explore issues facing Maine's coastal communities through dialogue with people who live, work, and play on our coast. From fisheries to tourism, from energy to environment, from economy to ecology, we go beyond the social media sound bites, probing deeply into complex issues and solutions. Coastal Conversations is produced with help from the University of Maine Sea Grant program, whose mission is to support Maine's coastal communities through research, outreach, and education. In partnership with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the University of Maine, Maine Sea Grant brings marine science to Maine people. We're about to engage in the heart and soul of community radio in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our coast and our communities. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant and I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour of Coastal Conversations. Today's show is about gulls and seabirds in the Gulf of Maine and how the gulls and seabirds in the Gulf of Maine are doing. Um, This will be an interesting show because we're going to be talking about gulls and seabird in the Gulf of Maine and some sort of alarming research that's showing that perhaps gulls in particular are declining in a way that seems to be a little bit unexpected. So we'll try to tease out what might be happening. Um, And we're going to do it with the help of my guests in the studio and later on the phone today, who are researchers at College of the Atlantic in Bar Harbor. Um, So this will be a great show um, where we're going to learn all about the different species of gulls and seabirds out in the Gulf of Maine and sort of what's happening to the population of these birds, some of which gulls in particular we think are sort of ubiquitous birds out there when in fact there might be changes afoot. So we'll learn a little bit about that. My guests in the studio, I'm excited to have these folks. Um, We are joined by John Anderson, who's the W.H. Drury Professor of Ecology and Natural History at College of the Atlantic. Welcome to the show, John. Great to be here, Natalie. Great to have you. Um, And then we also have a couple of current College of the Atlantic students. We have Megan Lyon, who is a senior at COA. Hi, Megan. Hi, thank you. And then we also have Audra McTagg. Did I say it right? Yes. Great. Audra (laughs) McTagg, who's a first year at College of the Atlantic. Yes. Great. Good to be here. Great to have you. And then later on the show, we'll be joined by Kate Schlepper, who is an alum of College of the Atlantic and is currently a graduate student at the University of New Brunswick right across the border. So it'll be interesting to hear her perspective from um, another sort of geography in the Gulf of Maine in terms of how it's connected with the work that's happening here in our own backyard off of the coast of our region. Um, So gulls and seabirds um, in the Gulf of Maine and how the populations are doing. I think maybe what we should do is start with the big picture and learn a little bit about what the species are that we're talking about. And so, John, welcome aboard. Thanks for coming. Um, Tell us a little bit about what species we're talking about today. Well, Natalie, one of the fun things about being in Maine is that Maine, for at least the last several thousand years, has been a really important place from a bird point of view. Um, We're on a kind of interesting situation where we get a lot of northern species coming out of the Arctic that come as far south as Maine, and then we get southern species coming out of the tropics that come as far north as Maine. 
So we sit right on this wonderful ecotone where there's a lot of diversity. And we also have the benefit of an awful lot of islands. We honestly don't know how many islands there are in Maine, but there are at least 4,000 of them. And hundreds of those are important in terms of seabird biology. So at one stage, anyway, we had about half of all the breeding seabirds east of the Mississippi nesting in islands in Maine. And the reason they're nesting on islands is, is that most of these seabirds are traditionally ground nesters. So they're making the nests on the ground, and they're stuck there for anywhere from three weeks to over a month. And that's where the kids are, and you have to keep coming back there. And if anybody likes to eat your children, it's lunch. So you don't want to be anywhere where there are predatory mammals like mink or raccoon or fox or coyote. And because Maine's got all these islands, it's been a perfect place to be. So birds that I think a lot of folks think are common um, on the seashore are gulls, like <coughs> herring gulls and great blackback gulls. And then we also have nesting populations of black guillemots and leeches storm petrel and then the common eider, which is the only commercially hunted sea duck here in Maine. But something to think about is that actually if you'd been on the coast of Maine 120, 130 years ago, there would have been very few of these birds here at all. Another exciting thing as an ornithologist about being in Maine is, is that we actually do have windows into the past. So for the last 150 years, great people have driven boats up and down the coast of Maine, looked at birds, and counted birds. And back in the 19th century, a lot of these species weren't here, and they came in from the north mostly, from out of Canada, and then they disappeared again. And the disappearance, I'm afraid, was at least in the first pass, probably due to all of us. So if you look at the main coast and look at the maps, you'll see a lot of egg rocks up and down the coast. And they're not called egg rock because of the shape of the rock. They're called egg rock because that's where people went to get the eggs. So if you were looking for fresh eggs back in the late 19th century, you didn't necessarily care if it was chicken or something else. And it was quite the tradition in some coastal towns to go out to nesting islands and you'd smash all the eggs at the beginning of the season. And then you'd come back a week or two later and collect the fresh eggs. They smashed them the first time because they didn't know how long they were incubated, and you wanted a fresh, unincubated egg. Result of that is we didn't get a heck of a lot of birds for a while. And then starting in the early 20th century, lots of these species started coming south and nesting on the main islands. And what are, when you're saying lots of these species, you mean the gulls or um, also the eiders and the petrels and others? I mean literally all of these guys uh -huh. because we have counts from the beginning of the 20th century and there seem to be as few as 50 eider ducks in Maine waters. And, yeah. you know, on a good day now, you in winter you go along the coast and you can see three or four or five times of that number in just one little sp little flock. But when Norton and Allen went and drove their boat up the coast back in the early 20th century, 50 was all they saw the whole way from Cape Cod down east. And is the presumption that before the era of the European settlers coming into the New World, the, the populations were much larger? This, or is, do we not this is subject to a lot of debate. And... The best I can tease it out, so one of the things that my students and I, you think of ornithology as being outdoor sport, but actually one of the things we spend a lot of our time doing is going over old records and old journals and old notebooks. 
And the best we can tease it out is, is that probably prior to the 19th century, a lot of what we now regard as seabird islands were pretty empty. Um, you look at the history of Maine, and you had American Indians on a lot of the islands. Um, they had dogs with them. And there was also an aquatic species of mink called the sea mink right. that was very common on these islands. So you get people and dogs and mink out in the islands, and that's not a good place to be if you're a seabird. And then one other ingredient that was clearly very, very common if you read the old colonial accounts was the bald eagle. And bald eagles seem to be an extremely common uh, on the coast of Maine prior to European occupation, sufficiently so that back in about 1809, the town of Vinyl Haven actually offered a bounty for bald eagles. If you took a dead bald eagle to the town office, you got a nickel, which in those days was some serious money. And folks on the coast didn't like the eagles because they were eating all of their domestic poultry, ducks and, um, and geese and chickens. So the eggs were in high demand um, for food, for consumption, for local folks. And then there was also, if I recall, some role in the fashion trade that helped. By, by the 1870s, um, global fashion sort of caught up with birds. And if you were a young lady of fashion, you would be going out in a hat that didn't just have feathers in it. It was actually made of whole birds. And this was a global phenomenon. I had a lovely great aunt in New Zealand. I remember when I was a little boy, her showing me her collection of hats from that period. And they were all birds of paradise. And she said, you know, Johnny, aren't they lovely? Of course, you wouldn't be caught dead wearing these now, but aren't they lovely? And they were lovely. And here in the United States, they didn't have birds of paradise but they had lots of things to use. And so they started out with the big herons like egrets. And when they ran out of those, they worked their way down. And yes, indeed, gulls were also being used for hats by the end. Uh -huh. So um, you mentioned your students and um, that one of the, and I saw your students who are here with me today nodding when you made reference to poring over historical records. Um, so before we dive into hearing the story of our two students and how they made their way onto bird colonies out in the Gulf of Maine, um, tell us a little bit about the ornithology program at College of the Atlantic and um, what kind of work students at COA are involved in related to bird studies. Well, College of the Atlantic, from the very beginning, has been committed to what we are currently calling expeditionary learning. And so rather than spending all your time in the classroom, uh, we really believe in going out and doing it, and going out and doing it in all kinds of different disciplines. So if you want to study history, go and study history. Don't just talk about history. Go and look into the documents. If you want to do biology, go actually and do biology. And from the very beginning, we've been very strong on field ecology. And the namesake of my chair, William H. Dury Jr., was a major ornithologist in the 20th century. And from the very first, when he joined the faculty at COA, he would stick students on boats and let's go look for birds. And that's a tradition that I've tried to carry on. Um, thanks to the Maine Lights Program, College of the Atlantic inherited Great Duck Island Light Station and Mount Desert Rock back in 1998. And since then, we've had teams of students out on Great Duck looking at the bird colony there and also studying the island as a whole. So we're very much trying to immerse students in field work, in lab work, give them a chance to actually practice what they think they might do later on. 
And so they can have a really good idea before they invest further time in their studies. Is this something they really want to do or would they rather do something else? Great. I'm always uh, amazed and impressed when I meet COA students who are uh, nine times out of ten engaged in the kinds of work that I think we more traditionally affiliate with graduate students, that College of the Atlantic undergraduates get to really sort of dive into topics at a much greater depth and with a lot more complexity than sort of your average undergraduate student. Um, so that's pretty exciting. So I want to hear from a, a couple of the current students, and in a little bit we'll hear from an alum. Um, so Megan, you are a senior right now. Tell us a little bit, before we dive into your research, tell us a little bit about your journey that brought you to COA and what, what you've been up to. So I grew up in New Jersey, and um, basically me and my mom took a camping trip up the East Coast and stopped at each school along the way. And COA was the last school that we visited. So we hiked in Acadia and ate lobster and were camping. And basically, the location sealed the deal. Um, yeah, so COA was my choice based on location, basically. And then once I got into uh, my first course, I learned about the islands. Great. Great. And Audra, you, my understanding, you're a Maine girl. So tell yeah. us what your circuitous route is to COA. Yeah. Um, so I grew up an hour and a half from Bar Harbor. Um, and so I visited in, in Newport. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I knew of uh, Acadia. I knew of Bar Harbor. Um, and I was actually introduced to the college through a friend of mine who came through um, a project at my high school to um, sit in on a whale dissection. And I thought that was so cool. Um, so I just started doing more research on the school and um, found out about a program called Islands Through Time, which is a high school program. Um, and so I applied for that and was really excited. And I came and it was, well, I was accepted into the program. And, and it's a program run by the college yeah. for high school students. Yeah. Okay. Um, and the program kind of gave me a taste of all of the little aspects of the college. So um, it introduced me to like the literature and the music side, but it also introduced me to these islands. We actually went and we visited these islands in the program and I fell in love. And so I came. <laughs> um, That's great. And you're a first year student and you're about to enter your second field season out. Yeah on one of the islands. Yes. Great, great. Yeah. Um, and so, Megan, you've been going out to one of the COA islands for four seasons now? This will be your fourth? I've been out each season since uh -huh. coming to COA. Great. But right after my first year, I spent the whole season out there. And then my second and third year, I was out there TAing islands through time. Great. Um, and then my last summer just passed. That just passed. I was out there doing my senior project. Great. And TAing means being an assistant to the faculty out on the the island. Yes. Yeah. She was my TA. <laughs> okay. Great. Great. So um, out there, you just used the word out there a couple times um, in terms of referring to your time on the island. So. Tell us what island we're talking about um, and where it is and a little bit about the island itself. So Great Duck Island is 12 miles off the coast. Uh, it takes about an hour to get there by boat. and um, Off of which coast? The coast where? Mount Desert Island. Okay, great. Yes. Um, yeah, so we usually leave from our port right at COA and head down. And um, 
the island is um it's beautiful there's trees and um we have a little boathouse and the the landing's always a little rough to get up there and um and then it's about a quarter mile walk to the house at the south end and the lighthouse great great and um who lives on the island uh there's a private residence at the north end um but it's just us at the south end um, with our little house and lighthouse, and the Nature Conservancy owns the, the middle portion. And what about the bird populations out there? Um, there's black guillemots, herring gulls, black-back gulls, leeches, storm petrels, and eider ducks, and we have a bald eagle nesting on the north end. Great, great. And so I, my understanding is that you have um, sort of had a leadership role out there. What's, what's your role as far as helping coordinate the science that happens out there. What, what kinds of scientists do you get coming out there? Who, what, how big are your groups of students? Tell us a little bit about that. Um, I mostly organized, um, helped organize the group of students that was out there the past summer. Um, we had a group of seven, um, and then it dwindled to five during the end of the season. Um, but I helped everyone organize their projects, get on the right track, um, how to time management, um, and, and get through their projects. And so each student ends up looking at a particular question, right? Yes. A particular topic. And so, Audra, what have you been sort of looking at in your time yeah. out there? Um, I went to the island this past summer uh, wanting to focus on calls of gulls. Um, and I wanted to see if they're, uh, the calls of both herring gull and blackback gull um, were more complex than we um, previously thought. Uh Um, And so I went out there looking at that to begin with. Um, But the, since we got the station 18 years ago, we've been collecting data on the chick growth of both herring and blackback gulls in what we call chick check. (laughs) Uh Um, So as much as we can, or once a day, we try to go out into the colony and get data from our chicks, um, like weight um, and that sort of thing. Um, so my project kind of grew into um, focusing more on that aspect. Um, and I started looking at um, correlation between um, age of chicks and head to bill length, um, which is this data we've been collecting for the past few years. Um, and so we've started seeing a very strong positive correlation between these two things. Um, Tell us what you mean by a strong positive correlation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, in collecting this research, we have started to find that as um, a chick ages, um, it uh, the head to bill length um also uh, grows. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, and it's been a very strong, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, a strong correlation. Yeah. yeah. Um, great, yeah. great. Um, so 18 years of data, that's an incredible data set. That's a pretty rare data set, I would imagine. John, help us understand the significance of that. Part of what concerns some of us in ecology is that an awful lot of data that's being collected is over the very short term. 
And gulls can live a long time. So a herring gull can live 20, 25 years sometimes. And if you only get two or three years of information about it, that's not really very much. So one of the things we've been trying to do is to look at these birds more at the scale of their own lifetime, both in terms of, as Audra says, their actual growth patterns in the chicks, um, when chicks live, when chicks die, and then also where they're nesting. And one of the things that students have been great at doing is helping me map the whole colony. And so we count the birds every year. We've got about 1,200 pairs of gulls nesting out there right now, but they're not nesting in the same places. And so we've seen in the years we've been on the island, when we started, there were about 100 pairs of gulls nesting down around the light station. And we were concerned that us being on the light station might scare them off. But anything but, over the years, the number of gulls at the station has increased. And so we've now got over 600 pairs nesting right around the station, all waiting for Audra to come down and weigh and measure them. And we'd like to think that that's because the gulls love us. But realistically speaking, we're sure something else is going on. And we think that something else is predation by eagles. So we see more and more eagles on the coast of Maine. A lot of islands that even 10 years ago were big gull colonies are now empty. And the north end of our island, as Megan says, has its own eagle. And what we're seeing, we think, is the birds moving down to the station to get away from the eagles. Because when the eagles see us up on the lighthouse, we don't do anything to harass them, obviously. But just seeing us up on the lighthouse, they'll quite often do a U-turn and go back up where they came from. Got it. So we'll come back to that, this question of maybe the gulls are relocating from other places where there's more disturbance, I'm thinking, um, over to consolidate in less and less areas, if I understand that correctly. Um, So we'll come back to that. I know that we have Kate Schlepper on the line, and we'd love to introduce her to listeners. Um, Kate Schlepper is a uh, College of the Atlantic alum who who was deeply engaged in this work that we're hearing about right now on Great Duck Island. Um, She graduated a few years ago, and she has continued in her work related to documenting changes in gull population patterns and foraging behavior and all that good stuff. And she's now just across the border at the University of New Brunswick. Um, So Kate, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good morning. Great. It's great to have you. So Kate, tell us um, uh, first a little bit about what you were looking at when you were at Great Duck Island. We were just talking with Audra and Megan about their work out on the island with John. Tell us about what you did there, and then we'll dive into how that connects with what you're doing um, in New Brunswick. Great. And, uh, of course, I was the um, Megan or Audra of five or six years ago. So, yeah. Uh, I've I've always been interested in the gulls, uh, <coughs> partly just because they're big and they're white and they nest in colonies by the thousands. So in some ways they're really easy to study, and I think that's um, important as we think about their conservation and their management moving forward is that they are, they are this very visible bird to the public. Um, yeah, so I've focused on gulls all along in between searching for guillemots and petrels and all of, all of that, that good stuff. And um, so now you're at the University of New Brunswick and you are still focusing on gulls and petrels and guillemots. Uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm a master's student uh, in Fredericton and I've, I'm a little bit further north now, so I've spent the last few summers on a handful of islands in the Bay of Fundy. Um, I was at a petrol, uh, sorry, a razorbill and puffin colony for summer, um, also monitoring terns. 
which, uh, of course, are impacted by the gull population. Uh, and then my research primarily focuses on um, gulls. So I spent last summer catching, catching adults and putting GPS logging devices on them in order to track where they move and in order to figure out what they eat and how, how individual birds eat and how that affects their ability to raise chicks. Okay, great. And so for folks who might be familiar with the Bay of Fundy, um, what area were you in? And when, uh, yeah, what area were you in? Um, Three islands. So Machai Seal Island is disputed Canadian U.S. territory. Um, That's where the puffins are. We won't ask you your opinion on the dispute now that you live in Canada. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, and then there's another island nearby called Kent Island. It's part of the Grand Manan Archipelago. And then further east is Briar Island, which is just off the coast of Nova Scotia. Great. So you're really um, sort of across a diverse area in the Bay of Fundy. Yeah, and that's that's really part of what I'm interested in is looking at this big range. So John was talking earlier about these population declines, and when we say that, we're saying gulls are declining, but it's across the whole coast of uh, eastern North America, so Newfoundland, Labrador, all the way south through the Bay of Fundy and beyond. So it's really a big range that we're trying to consider. Huh. Can you help us um, understand sort of the scope of what we mean by decline and and help us understand, I think probably most of our listeners, um, we sort of, at least on the coast of Maine, we think of gulls as these, you know, they're all over the place. We don't don't sort of pay attention to the potential that, wow, gulls might be declining. What do we mean by population decline when we're talking about gull species like herring gull and great blackback gull? What are you seeing? It's it's an excellent question, and it, it's hard to wrap your head around because the tendency is to um, look at individual colonies. So, for example, John and his students are on Great Duck Island, and it's really easy to count the birds on the one island. But, of course, gulls are good at moving, so they can, they can relocate and they can they re-nest hundreds of miles away from where they originally started. And so you're trying to capture these changes over a very large area. So and gulls do not go back to nest on the same island. They often do, but if if, if they're not successfully raising chicks, they they okay. um, will take a year off or they'll move elsewhere. Oh, okay. And and a lot of as you as you um, implied before, a lot of people say gulls are still very abundant. Um, why should we worry? Or alternatively, they'll say gulls only increase as much as they did in the last hundred years because we've been humans have been supplying them with extra food so fish bait discarded over the side of the boat or open landfills this is free food for gulls and they say well maybe gulls are just returning to some sort of carrying capacity or some optimal level And, and my response to that is um again i think it's a great question but at the end of the day i I still think herring gulls are worth watching because they're known to be a species that's really good at taking advantage of opportunities so they can eat just about anything, they can nest just about anywhere. And so the fact that we're seeing them decline over such a wide geographic range, I think that's an indication that other things are changing in our marine environment and we should be paying attention to these changes. Yeah, that's 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 really interesting. Um, and so some of the ways that you're looking at this is by tracking the movement of gulls. Am I understanding that correctly with the logging devices? 
Yes, so the, the loggers are good at understanding behavior, and then I can also pair that with what we know about what they've actually consumed. Okay, okay. And knowing what they consume gives you a sense of how well they're doing and their survival and that kind of thing. Yep, so gulls as a species are generalists, and they can eat just about everything, but if you look at individual birds, they tend to specialize on one or two or three types of food. So you might have, in, in one colony on Great Duck Island, you might have a gull that goes out to fish at sea every day and is catching mackerel or herring or something like that from the water, and you might have another bird that nests three feet away that's um, going to... Uh, a landfill somewhere on, on on the coast. And so those two birds are doing very different things, and it ultimately affects the energy and the time they have to raise new chicks. Mm. Mm-hmm. And in your um, three separate sites and then also in your time at Great Duck Island here on the coast of Maine, what are some of the things that you're seeing in terms of um, one changes from one place to another or differences from one site to another? Um, or is it too soon to tell? Um, we're still getting data. So we have, uh, John and I have plans this summer to put um, some of those GPS tags out in places like Great Duck Island. So we're, we're still exploring that question. But one thing generally that we've seen um, researchers before me on both the east and actually the west coast of North America have demonstrated a shift toward land-based food sources for gulls. So more and more over the last century, instead of eating herring or mackerel or blue mussels, something like that from the wild, gulls are eating at garbage dumps or at landfills or at uh, fish processing plants, that sort of thing. Interesting. Interesting. Um, before you, before we let you go, um, what do you what do you sort of anticipate finding in the coming years? What are your expectations for for your research? My dream would be to uh, connect the dots, so to speak. So we have a little bit of information from Newfoundland, and of course, my colonies in the Bay of Fundy. John has some information about uh, Great Duck Island and Mount Desert Rock, and then we have some collaborators down um, in the Isle of Shoals, right on the New Hampshire border as well. So really trying to describe gull feeding habits from Newfoundland down to New Hampshire and tie that back to um, reproductive success and try to try to, try to better understand these, these population shifts in the gull population. Great. It will be really interesting to sort of pay attention to your research in the coming years. Um, and, and I was going to let you go, but I have one more question. Um, do you, um, how, how much collaboration do you see in sort of the research world with um, folks who are looking at other population changes that are happening in the Gulf of Maine and in terms of trying to connect the dots both within the um, things happening to gull species, but how that might cor- correlate to what's happening with fish species or phytoplankton, um, sort of the sort of larger web of the ocean kinds of questions. Is there a lot of, co- are you seeing collaboration in that sense to help Definitely. answer some of these big questions? Definitely. And more and more, I think people are seeing it's important. So I love herring gulls. I'm talking a lot about herring gulls, but um, I, I think the single species sort of approach is starting to fade a little bit and um, the ornithology ornithologists and bird people are more and more trying to collaborate with the oceanographers to, to in fact, use seabirds as 
sort of indicator species. So you can look at what kind of food a gull eats or how well a tern, tern populations are raising their chicks in order to talk about things like primary production and phytoplankton, um, the, the low end of the food chain. So there, there is great effort these days to, to try to understand the whole system. Great. Thank you so much, Kate, um, for joining us today um, on Coastal Conversations. Thank you. Um, if you're just tuning in, that was Kate Schlepper, who's a graduate student at the University of New Brunswick who's studying herring gull populations and foraging behavior. Um, Kate is also an alum of College of the Atlantic in Bar Harbor, Maine, and I am joined in the studio with three folks from College of the Atlantic um, as we explore this topic on gull and seabird populations in the Gulf of Maine. I have John Anderson with me. He is the W.H. Drury Professor of Ecology and Natural History at COA. I have Megan Lyon, a senior at COA and Audra McTagg, a first-year student at COA. Um, and I wanted to open up the lines to folks calling in. Um, there's all kinds of questions related to gull populations and seabird um, in, seabirds in the Gulf of Maine. So if you have a question, a comment, um, something you want to touch base with our researchers about, if you're a student who's interested in learning what life is like as a student in the field, or if you have your own observations, things that you are seeing um, in your coastal communities related to changes you might be seeing, by all means, please call in um, to the studio. The number here is 469-050. You can also call 1-866-625-9378, um, and we'd love to have your comments. So um, that was great to hear sort of Megan's perspective, and she seems to be really looking at um, the big picture kinds of questions, what's happening way up north in the northwest Atlantic to a little bit further south. Um, but really what struck me in what Kate was saying um, is that she, you know, she's looking at larger um, ecosystem changes, um, but really localized information is pretty critical. And so what you guys are doing on Great Duck Island feeds into some of that larger work. Um, Megan, I know you're looking a little bit more at guillemots. Tell us a little bit about guillemots um, and what you're looking at. So on Great Duck, we have an estimated 400 pairs of black guillemots nesting. Um, they're members of the family Alcidae, so they're closely related to puffins, but they're often overlooked. Um, they have these bright red feet that are usually hidden underneath their bodies or in the water. And um, they're crevice nesters, so they spend most of their life at sea and then um, nest within the, the rocks along the coastline of Great Duck. Um, on Great Duck, we have one of the... Uh, biggest populations in the Gulf of Maine. Okay, and so what are you what are you looking at related to guillemots? So I was doing basic natural history and breeding biology of the guillemots, um, but I was looking at nest nest site selection, distributional changes throughout the years, um, what their clutch sizes look like, um, and I was doing a feeding and kleptoparatism study. Interesting. Um, so this is where a lot of like what Kate and I were talking there at the end, sort of very specific um, data points, how that correlates to a much larger question of changes. Um, I think we have a call. We have Lindy from Southwest Harbor. Hi, Lindy. Conversation. I was oh, wondering, um, I think we everyone on your panel are ecologists, what their um, view would, uh, is and what effect that horrible pages nomination of uh, Kathleen Chase to uh, Environmental Protection Agency 
that would any decisions that uh, this woman would make have any <clears throat> effect on your studies or funding that you might be getting for such studies? And I'll listen to your comment off the air. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you so much for your call. John, what do you think about our EPA appointee or DEP appointee probably more? Well, one of the things that is really nice, frankly, about being in Maine is, is that Mainers like the outdoors and they're very, very concerned about their coastal communities and the coastal environment. And, you know, p politicians come and go, but the coast is always there. And a great thing for Maine is, is there's been enormous involvement by different organizations, Fish and Wildlife Service from the federal level, National Audubon, Nature Conservancy, Maine Coast Heritage Trust, um, State of Maine. And so there's a lot of different options out there in terms of protection of habitat. And we've seen increased protection of islands just in my time here in Maine. I've been here for nearly 30 years. A lot of islands that were in danger of being developed have been protected. And this is a process that I hope goes on. And just having a population of people here on the coast who really appreciate wildlife and being on the water, I think is a really good safeguard against the whims of particular political appointees. Yeah, thanks. Looking at your students who are giving me the eye contact that they don't have anything to add to that question. So thanks for your call. Um, I meant to say Bureau of Environmental Protections or Board of Environmental Protection, so thanks. Um, so let's come back to um, research on guillemots for a second. Um, what, what are some of the things that you found, Megan, while you were out in the field? So I'm finding that there's a lot of distributional changes among um, nest sites for the guillemots. A lot of the guillemots are it seems like they're changing in response to the goal movement as well. So um, a lot of the guillemots that have been nesting in the north end, it seems like they're moving southward uh, towards our, our southern colony. And why, what, what makes you sort of pay attention to that? Why is that important? Um, well, we think that it might be because of the eagle predation. Um, eagles will go after guillemots also. And... Um, it seems like the the colony at the southern end that is nesting with a lot of gulls um, have earlier hatch dates and um, are more successful with their chicks. Great. Yeah, John. Um, one of the things that's also exciting for us, Kate referred to this a little bit, uh, we really are more and more seeing collaboration between different groups and different organizations in different places. And if I may give just sort of a brief shout out to our own main sea grant, um, several years ago, there really wasn't that much communication between different gull colony research groups. And then Sea Grant um, helped us pull together a gull working group. And so we're able to share information and share data um, on a regular basis now. And one of the things we've discovered is, is that Maine seems to have a variety of different behaviors in our birds. Great duck gulls, for whatever reason, seem to be very mellow and relaxed around other species. So... Megan mentioned kleptoparasitism earlier, and that's birds stealing food from other birds. And this has been reported as a big problem in other colonies. And I don't know, Megan, did you see very much of that happening with ours? Only two instances the whole summer um, with 270 hours of observation. Mm. So gulls get a really bad rap sometimes as being birds that kill and eat other birds and birds that steal from other birds. 
But at least on Great Duck, we don't see very much of that happening. So some people talk about gulls killing eider duck chicks, and the eider population in Maine is declining significantly, we think. We just don't see that in Great Duck. So in nearly 10 years of students very patiently sitting on top of the tower and watching eiders foraging around the gull colony, we've only had three instances of eider chicks being eaten. Mm. So I think gulls either are doing very different things elsewhere or maybe gulls just have a bad rap. And do you think the gulls um, out on Great Duck Island are mellower I'll say um, because food source is plentiful so they there it's there's less angst for finding food or do you have any hypothesis of why that might be well this is one of the things that we're constantly looking at and it's also something that actually Audra is going to be working on in this coming summer because she's going to be shifting gears a bit more into endocrinology and I think I'll toss that one to her great <laughs> Yeah. So First, let's have you define endocrinology for us. Okay. Um, endocrinology is simply the study of um, like hormones and endocrine processes that happen in uh, someone. <laughs> Whether it's animal or human. Yeah. Or, great. Um, and so, yeah, um, like everyone has been saying, um, the Gulf uh, population throughout um, – this the east coast um, has been declining, but on Great Duck, it's actually been increasing. And so, um, there can be possibly some type of correlation between this melanus um, and the population increase. And what I'm going to be studying, um, I'm going to be out on Great Duck for the first month of the summer um, in June, and I'm going to be taking um, samples from our birds, um, so uh, fecal and blood samples. And then I'm actually going to be going to uh, the New England Aquarium in July, and it will be analyzing them for stress hormones. So um, I'm going to be taking the samples from birds around the island um, with different um, uh, things happening, like uh, different uh, human disturbance and different predation um, to see if there's a correlation between the stress um, and their success rates. So I just want to emphasize again my point that I was saying earlier is that you're a second year, you're a first year student. Yeah. So you're doing this the summer of your first year in college. Yeah. So this is the <laughs> level of research that I find really fascinating that happens um, at COA and out on the islands. Um, so, uh, so you guys have been talking about field work a little bit. Um, let's paint a picture for our listeners. What are we talking about, right? So I've spent a fair bit of time on the coast, and colonies of birds are absolutely gorgeous, kind of stinky. Um, <laughs> tell us a little bit about life doing field work. Yeah. Um, so a typical day, we will wake up really early in the morning, and we'll do tower count at 7 o'clock every day that we can. And what's tower count? So we will go to the tower, all of us, and we will count every individual that we can see of all of the species that we can see of birds. Um, uh, and then throughout the rest of the day, we'll be doing chick check, which I had mentioned earlier, um, and we'll be doing our personal projects. And um, how do you actually count all the birds in a bird colony when there are hundreds of birds <laughs> flying all over the place? How does one do that? Very carefully. Because <laughs> <laughs> you're doing it from up above, right? So you're looking yeah. down. 
Are you using any sort of tool to help you sort of make estimates? Go ahead, Megan. Basically, you want to pick a, um, a coast, and you just want to follow that all the way through. So normally, you have goals on the... You have all the birds on the, the rocky berm, and then you have some of them in the field, too. But it's best if you, you start at one end and you just count one species at a time and go through. And then on your way back, you could count um, a different species. So you might go and count all of the herring gull species and then all the blackbacks and then the guillemots. And um, so you're all doing that. So do you then average out your, your results to try to get an estimate? We average at first, and then we start to learn that some of us see other, like certain species, better than others. So there was one girl out there that was focusing on common eiders, and she would always have the high count for eiders. So we would, of course, use her number because we knew that we, she was seeing the eider ducks more than more than we were. That's fascinating. So different people tend to sort of have the capacity to see certain birds better than others. Yeah. Interesting. Um, and in terms of field work uh, with the guillemots, um, so if I remember my ecology correctly from college a long time ago, um, guillemots are ground nesters, right? So how, how, are, you, how are you studying guillemots when they're, they're in the dirt? They're nesting under the rocks, and some of them quite deep into the rocks. So a lot of the nests um, I can't see. I will feel around under the rocks, and if I feel eggs or the bird down there, I know it's a nest. Um, a lot of times you have to wait until they, they're flushed out of the nest. Um, so a lot of the behavioral studies are, are watching them in the water or on the top of their rocks. And um, do they peck at you? <laughs> they're actually pretty docile they're i mean i've had individuals in the nest and all you could just reach in and pick them right out uh -huh. of the nest um they kind of just freeze up and i think that's a strategy so like you they think you can't see them now i know that the um the state and conservation organizations strongly recommend um that people not land on nesting islands during nesting season right because of the impacts that you might have on disturbing the birds so the research sort of begs the question of that relationship between the researcher and the species being researched. How do you guys balance that piece in terms of the potential for impact on the species that you're studying? What are you, what are you observing with that? Um, we definitely have an impact on their behaviors and what they're doing. Um, I mean, guillemots will flush from their nest um, within 500 feet of seeing you coming. So it's... It's a challenge, um, and it can be frustrating at times, but um, we use, like, little pop-up tents to kind of hide ourselves um, in the fields to observe them or sit in the lighthouse. The, when we're in the, the tower, it doesn't seem to be affecting them as much. Great. Yeah, and yeah. this is also kind of a thing we're studying currently. Great. Um, especially with my project this summer. Um, a part of it is looking at where human disturbance is greatest and... Um, how that impacts their stress levels. So okay, interesting. We'll be looking. It really tends to, it seems so far, vary from species to species. And so species like double-crested cormorants, which we don't have on Great Duck, we know from prior research with the National Park Service and some of their islands that they're very easily scared off their nests. And unlike gull chicks or eider chicks, cormorant chicks are hatched naked. 
and so they're very sensitive to cold or heat. And so the parents being flushed off the nest can be very destructive indeed. And this is part of the concern in terms of conservation. A kayaker just landing to take a few selfies on a cormorant colony could easily kill literally a quarter of the chicks for that year in just 15 minutes. Uh, other species are more probably robust in this sort of situation. But the reason that both the state and the federal government close these islands is that we don't necessarily know from species to species or even individual to individual who's going to be the most heavily affected. And so we'll get a better idea with gulls thanks to Audra's endocrine work. But eider ducks, there's no question if chicks are separated from their mother, they're very vulnerable to predation. And if they're flushed off the nest, then crows and ravens will go in and eat the eggs. So this is part of why the seabird islands tend to be protected and closed during the breeding season. Interesting. Um, so I'm going to ask our two students in, in the room. Um, we'll start with Megan. Uh, what would you say to students now who are interested in either doing the kind of work that you're doing, given that it's pretty unique, incredible work? Um, how would you recommend that students get into this kind of work? What would you recommend for students? And yeah, um, I think volunteering at, at certain places is a good way into the field. Um, seeing that you have volunteer experience is a plus when people are looking for um, future in interns. Great. Yeah. Mm. Um, I would just say do the research and try to find as many opportunities as possible. So um, getting connections and finding people um, who are doing it in your area, reaching out to them and talking. Um, and then, of course, going to um, organizations and volunteering and doing that sort of thing. Um, great, yeah. great. And Megan, what's your plan? You're graduating this year. So presumably you're doing a final project about your Guillemont work, right? Tell right, us a bit about yeah. that and then where you're headed with it. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm writing a paper right now on natural history and breeding biology of the Black Guillemont. And um, it's going to be focused on, on the population on Great Duck, and maybe there'll be a publishable paper out of that. And Great. then um, this summer, I'm interning at the Rachel Carson National Wildlife Refuge, looking at piping plovers. Oh, great. So you're continuing on yes. with your bird work. Great. Um, and John, um, uh, so... Okay, so we've heard. So I'm I'm trying to wrap my brain around um, gull decline um, and what the significance of that is to the larger health of the Gulf of Maine. And in particular, what I'm sort of glomming onto is this notion that a few of you have expressed that because gulls are generalists, um, the fact that even a generalist that can usually sort of make do with a wide diversity of prey sources, um, even a generalist is sort of on decline. What's the what's the big picture here in terms of what you're seeing in the Gulf of Maine as a whole? And you've been doing work out here for three three decades now. Um, yeah. So so what help us understand what that means? Well, we've seen an awful lot of changes in the Gulf of Maine over the last century. Um, changes in the fishery, changes in human land use, things like that. But a lot of what we were seeing was very local, and that was because we just weren't talking to each other. And so several years ago, um, we put together a symposium of gull biologists um, at the Waterbird Society meeting in Germany. 
And I just sent out a call to people studying gulls and said, let's talk about changes in populations. And when we all got together in Wilhelmshaven, we found that we were seeing a lot of the same patterns right around the western North Atlantic. And populations were declining in a broad area and probably for very different reasons. We think here in Maine the big impact right now is bald eagles, but that doesn't explain what's happening further north and east. So the frightening thing is is that we're seeing this big change in a big area with a real generalist, like you say, and that suggests that there's maybe a bunch of different things happening in a very wide area of the Atlantic Ocean. And this is something that we need to be really collaborating with a broad range of scientists to try and track. And it ties right back to people also, because as the environment changes along the coast, that's going to impact everybody who relies on the coast, from people who are digging clams, people who are fishing, people who are relying on the tourist industry. Gulls are potentially a real indicator about a sort of deep health in the Gulf and in the Atlantic itself. And the more we know, the better. I can't help but think about some of the other topics that we've covered on this show, including ocean acidification and um, sea temperature rise and those kinds of things. Um, So perhaps you're seeing some of those correlations. We suspect that's the case. We've been doing work with the National Park Service. Acadia, besides um, Mount Desert Island, has ownership or easements on 120 other islands. And so they're really interested in the impact of sea level rise. And we're now looking at probably a six-foot sea level rise in the next 75 to 80 years. And there are islands out there right now that won't exist 75 years from now. I think we might have um, just a few more minutes left. Um, and we might, we might have time for maybe one more call if anybody wants to call in. Um, so you're listening to Coastal Conversations, and we're talking about changes in gull populations. Um, so sea level rise increase, you said, in potentially up to six feet. What does that do specifically for the island that you guys have been studying on at Great Duck Island, just off of Mount Desert Island? Well, Great Duck Island inevitably, certainly within my students' lifetimes, is going to become medium duck island and teeny duck island Ah. because there's an area in the north end that it's been a sea channel before. It's going to be a sea channel again. So we're just going to see that island splitting up. Ah, interesting. Interesting. Um, And so when you're out um, doing some work with the gulls, you're looking at some species that are nesting really close to shore. So um, I'm just thinking again about that sea level rise and the guillemots that are right there in the shore. What are you, you're nodding, Megan. Um, it could be pretty detrimental to, to guillemots in the Gulf of Maine. Most other places, they're cliff nesters, so they're out of reach of, ah. of the water. Um, but on great duck in, in particular, it, it could mean no more nesting guillemots. Right. So they so they nest in different habitats in different areas. Right. Interesting, which is true for various species, right? Yeah, great. Um, so let's go with parting thoughts. Who wants to give us some parting thoughts? John, what do you think that you're going to be paying attention to in the coming years with your successive generations of students out on the island? Well, we hope to go on tracking populations and distributions. Um, We banned as many birds as we can, and Audra's going to be off to the New England Natural History Conference in just two weeks presenting a paper there on where our birds have been showing up. 
and we've had birds as far away as Mississippi and Louisiana. Wow. So it's not just the breeding, it's the wintering time that matters. And we've had a bird go as far as Bermuda. So we're hoping to use gulls as a way of really tying Maine into the world and then also the world coming back to Maine. Great, great. And um, how can um, potential students find out more about the program? Maybe a website? What's the COA website? coa.edu, and they can maybe do a search for islands research, maybe Great Duck Island? We have sections on the COA website. Like you say, it's www.coa.edu. And the best thing I would say that prospective people might want to do is talk to folks like Audra and Megan. Um, seabird research isn't for everybody, and they've been very nice about it, but gulls bite, and one end of a gull produces one thing, and the other end of the gull produces something else. <laughs> and so experienced seabird researchers know you hold a bird sideways. You don't do it end on. <laughs> and that's either something that you can roll with and still get good data, or it really bothers you. And the only way to really know that is to do it. That is a great parting shot. <laughs> quite literally. Um, So unfortunately, we've come to the end of our time on Coastal Conversations today about gulls and seabirds in the Gulf of Maine, um, and particularly the decline of gulls and the status of other seabirds like guillemots, um, and the work that's being done at College of the Atlantic and the College of the Atlantic Research Station at Great Duck Island. I'd like to thank our guests for our time and your good work out there. Um, Our guests today were John Anderson, the WH Jury Professor of Ecology and Natural History at College of the Atlantic, Megan Lyon and Audra McTagg, who are current students at College of the Atlantic, and also Kate Schlepper, who joined us on the phone, who is a graduate student at the University of New Brunswick and an alum of the college. Um, Thanks to folks who called in. Coastal Conversations is produced with support from the Maine Sea Grant Program at the University of Maine, bringing marine science to Maine people. Normally, we air from 10 to 11 a.m. on the fourth Friday of each month, But for those of you who pay attention, we swapped showtimes this month with our sister program, Talk of the Towns, and host Ron Beard. Um, So we'll be back in May. Our show's theme music, A Following Sea, was composed and performed by Paul Anderson. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program, and stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, host of Coastal Conversations, wishing you a good morning. (laughs) 